What do you do when you get stuck in life as a Christian? What do you do if getting stuck is partly your fault? Well, we discussed that today. I hope it's going to help you because Lord knows after COVID-19, we could use some advice for when we feel stuck. It's your favorite night of the week. This is The Deep End. Happy Tuesday evening, everybody. My name is Tim, and I am the host of the Deep End Podcast, and I am so glad that you have decided to tune in either through video or through audio. Tuesday nights at 7 p.m., the Deep End Podcast, where we dig through the scriptures, going through the book of Acts, almost done with season three. Can you believe it? Please do this for me. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Say this every week, and I see every week some of you respond, and I'm so grateful for that. Keep clicking that subscribe button if you haven't already. And, well, actually, only click it once so that it's clicked and done. (laughs) And then click that thumbs up and like the video. By the way, if you could also leave us a review on your podcast app, that would be much appreciated. Only positive words, please. Only encouragement, as the scripture says. But welcome in, youtube.com slash TheDeepNTV, FM 99.5 in Woonsocket, Spotify, WEZE AM 590 in Boston, uh, glad to have you all here. We hope that you are benefited and that you are helped by this material. Well, we're going to get right to it today. Uh, we're, we've do, we're doing this new thing on the deep end, and we're going to finish out season three with these uh, Serve Team Spotlights. So right now, we're going to head right into a Waters Kids emphasis on Serve Team Spotlight, helping you find your gifting, your calling, or your place in the body as we bring Jesus to the nations. Watch this. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to our Serve Team Spotlight with Waters Kids. Yeah. Rebecca serves in our Waters Kids ministry, and we're just going to talk a little bit about that and what we love about it and why it's important. Mm -hmm. All right, so you're ready to be interviewed. Totally. Okay. So my first question for you is, what do you do as a Serve Team member? So there are like a lot of assumptions of like what we as Waters kids do, how it's just like childcare or it's another form of babysitting. But really, like when you think about it, these kids are going to eventually be like running the church. So we're just like planting those seeds like for the next generation and just giving them like the love that they need to just grow and develop in Christ. So that's actually a lot of work. It sounds like simple but um there's there's some challenges definitely and um we just try our best to resolve them mm-hmm. so. also real quick how old are you i'm 15. <laughs> she's 15. yeah um so that deep answer came from a 15 year old we're proud of her all right why do you think waters kids is important to waters church um well, like i said before there really wouldn't be a church if there wasn't a kids ministry you know like um like the parents bring their kids in and it's just like routine for them but when you like, just take a step back and realize that we're um, responsible for like teaching kids about jesus and like giving them that relationship that they need mm-hmm. because some kids don't have like, a good relationship like that at home mm-hmm. so it's like we just try to provide a safe space. Like that's like the bottom line. Is we mm-hmm. just want to make sure that they feel comfortable, that they feel safe, and mm-hmm. that they and that they feel loved. That's mm-hmm. just like what the goal is here. Just to make sure that everyone's happy. 
number three, why is it important to serve in water skins? Why would you tell somebody else that they okay. should serve in water skins? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's definitely challenging. To, it makes you, it forces you to get out of your comfort zone. However, there's so many relationships. I've been doing this for like two to three years. Um, like this is like my family now. So whenever like I'm feeling down, they're always there for me. I'm always there for them. Whenever there's like anything going on with the kids, if someone's having a bad day, we're always there for them and for each other mm -hmm. because it's important for us to be our best so that we can give our best to the kids. And right. that's like what we try to do so that when they get older, you know, they have the support that we need so that one day they can end up running a church like, mm -hmm. like the adults do. <laughs> And our last question would be, what would you say the best part about serving is? Well, for me, the best part is definitely the connections that I made because um, I work with the three-year-olds in preschool, so I get to kind of watch them like grow up and move up in the different rooms. But also when I have them at three and they get older, so they move out of our room. But it's just like really amazing to see how I haven't had kids in like three years or whatever, and they'll still come back and like be like, hi, like I remember you like you helped me so much like thank you you know they're like little but like seriously it's just you don't think that what you're doing like really matters and like you don't see the impact until you kind of just like step back and just like watch what you've done and just watch it kind of come together because you have to have like faith in it because it's it's a wild ride but it's definitely <laughs> worth it <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for answering those questions. You did a really good job. Thanks. And for the rest of you, if you're interested in anything to do with Waters Kids, you want to sign up to serve, visit Info Central. We'll be happy to see you. Oh, man, that's just so awesome. And I and I totally um, want to just reinforce what Rebecca said. There is no church without Waters Kids. There's no church without children's ministry. I am a product of children's ministry. Now, my children's ministry was nothing like the one we've got going on here. It was boring, and it was like in a dank, gross, nasty, humid cellar. And today, we have state-of-the-art facilities ready for your kids, ready to help your kids connect with Jesus and connect with the truth of scriptures, and ready for you to help serve. So sign up at waterschurch.org slash serve, waterschurch.org slash serve. Find your place in the body of Christ. And I always like to say this about Waters Kids is you think that Waters Kids is babysitting your kids so I can teach you the Bible. No, no, no. I'm babysitting you so that our Waters Kids team can teach your kids the Bible. That's what's happening on the weekend. There is nothing like it. Thank God for all of our Waters Kids uh, serve team members. Rebecca, awesome job. You're an all-star. Let's get into the book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv forward slash partner or on the Cash App with hashtag TV. All right, Acts chapter 24 through 26. And last week, by God's grace, I got through three chapters of the book of Acts. The team over there totally did not believe I could do it, but I fooled them all and I proved them all wrong. Well, thank you, Michael. Michael believed. Yes, thank you. Uh, but I got through three chapters in less than an hour last week. I am really proud of myself. So that means I have extra time this week to get through three chapters. <laughs> wrong. Uh, we are going to get through three chapters today, though. And the reason why is because if you go through these chapters, you're going to see like after a while, it's like, OK, we get it. Paul is on trial. And sometimes we have to not exhaust people with the scriptures, but just kind of get an overview. And so we're going to get an overview of chapters 24, 25, 26. I've titled this talk before Kings and Governors. When you're stuck, 
God is still working. Okay, quick recap. Remember last week I talked about this, that Paul makes this mistake where he keeps hearing people through the Holy Spirit tell him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. And remember that God had told Paul, I've called you to go to the Gentiles. The Jews are rejecting this message. You're going to go to the Gentiles. And so Paul goes to the Gentiles, and for many years he's very successful. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's seeing uh, countless people baptized and walk in the faith. And then you know, he starts to get a heart for his people, and he goes back to Jerusalem, and he's warned several times it's going to be bad. Uh, he's going to be imprisoned, and he's going to face trouble. And he even says to the Ephesians, he says, I know. Even the Holy Spirit has told me I'm going to be in prison, and I'm going to be in chains, and I just need to go. I need to go. So he goes. Well, he ends up stuck. He ends up stuck in Jerusalem for quite some time. We're going to find out in just a few moments. But I want to give you the highlights of uh, Acts chapter 21 through 26, which I, I call this section... Uh, uh, Acts chapter 21 through 26, Paul's mistake. Like, Paul should have just listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit and said, let me just keep being fruitful among the Gentiles. But God has a purpose in it. And here's the thing I want to tell you, that when you're stuck, even if you're stuck because of your mistakes, God has a purpose in it. And so I want you to take comfort in that today, and I hope that this content helps you. Let's go over the overview, though. Uh, Acts chapter 21 through 26, Paul's going to face six trials. Now, we talked about three of them last week. We're going to talk about three more of them this week. He's going to face six trials. Uh, he's going to spend two years in prison, uh, and he's never going to get a fair ver verdict. He he's never going to get exonerated, even though time and time and time again, it shows that he did nothing wrong, that the, that the people who are prosecuting him have no witnesses that are credible that will stand up and show some law that he broke. And he will face this for two years, and then the book of Acts will end, unfortunately, with Paul in chains. But God's purpose will prevail. Have you felt stuck for the past four months? I think I have. I know you have. In many respects, we all have, in some because of this whole global pandemic. And sometimes I think we get stuck because we make mistakes like Paul made mistakes. And sometimes I think we allow the devil to come in. And you know, he is so crafty. He is so crafty. Remember the scripture says that he prowls around. He's always looking for someone to discourage, someone to destroy, someone to cast down. And I think that he waits for you to make some mistakes. And, and I keep using the word mistakes because, um, you know, there's sin, but then there's mistakes. And, and what Paul does here is not necessarily sin. It's a mistake. He just didn't listen to God, uh, didn't listen, listen to the warnings. Um, and sometimes I think we make these choices and they go horribly wrong, or they get us into a place in life where we just don't move forward, and we think, that's it. It's over. I've blown it. I've missed my chance. My shot is over. And I want to tell you something. Nothing could be further from the truth, and you need someone to tell you this from the outside of you, because I know how the devil loves to mess with the inside of you. You need somebody like me who will care enough to say, it's not over. It's not over. And all you got to do is look at Scripture, because countless people in God's plan made serious, life-altering choices that got them stuck in life. I take you back to a guy by the name of Moses. Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, sees that his people, the Israelites, or Exodus chapter 2, actually, um, his people are enslaved in Egypt, and he kills an Egyptian, thinking that God would deliver the, Egyptian, uh, the Israelites through his use of force. And it doesn't go well. He's accused of murder. It's found out. He runs for his life. And he hides out in the, in the wilderness, shepherding his father-in-law, future father-in-law's sheep for 40 years. 40 years. What would you be telling yourself in year 26 of that 40-year period? Wouldn't you be telling yourself, it's over. 
I'm done. This is my life now. I just, I just shepherd my father-in-law's sheep, and that's it. Well, God does not give up on Moses. And 40 years later, the burning bush moment, moment happens, and Moses is sent in God's power, not his own power, but in God's power, to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And I think sometimes when we make choices that get us into places where we feel stuck, we need to remember what Scripture teaches us. We need to remember that some of God's best choice vessels, like Paul, like Moses, got stuck in desert places, and God did not give up on them. That's today's lesson, and I hope it's an encouragement to you. Let's get into the text, Acts chapter 24, 25, 26. Prayers for me as I'm going to try to get through all this text very quickly. Verse 1, Acts chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace. Now he's addressing... Uh, the uh, governor, Felix. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in every everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Okay, so there's this guy named Tertullus, and he is a Roman lawyer, all right? This is, this is a hired gun. This is a, this is a uh, a crackpot attorney, if you will. He's, he's a hired gun attorney for the Jews who hate Paul. They've hired a Roman attorney to prosecute Paul before Governor Felix. And there's a lot of stuff going on here in this text that we need to be aware of. First off, Tertullus is laying it on thick. He's being an absolute flatter, a flattery. Uh, he's, he's laying flattery on Felix here in this moment. Because look what he says in verse 2. He says, Through you we enjoy much peace, and by your foresight, Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. Okay, that's just flat out not true. The truth about Governor Felix is that Governor Felix was not a man of upstanding character. He was not a good governor. In fact, he was one of the governors under which... Uh, the, the uh, Israel, nation, Israel nation actually experienced the, the longest tenure of sedacious uprisings and rebellions. Uh, Felix actually conspired one time to have the high priest Jonathan assassinated by rebels because he continually nagged Felix about his unjust and inept administration. So Felix was not a good guy. But Tertullus, the hired lawyer of the Jews to attack Paul, is just flattering him. Fact is, there is, more, there is less peace in Felix's reign than any other procurator before him. By the way, Felix succeeded a guy named Pilate. I don't know if you know that guy's name, right? So this is Pilate's successor. And he had made life miserable for the Jews. And it was witnessed by his proliferation of rebellious movements throughout his terms. People just trying to rebel, 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 because when there's no peace in the land, there's all kinds of up uprisings. Well, Tertullus also uses this phrase called foresight. If you look there, he says, by your foresight. And in the, in the Latin, that is providentia. Uh, that is actually the theme word of the Roman Empire. See, the Romans believed that they were God's providentia, God's foresight, the, 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 pay, the pantheon of God's foresight for the world and that they had wisdom and revelation from the gods to govern society. Much like the phrase, in God we trust, is on our coins, providentia was emblazoned on the coins of the, year of the Roman Empire. And so Tertullus is just playing it up, man. He is playing on Felix's ego. He's playing on his national pride. He's playing on, you know, his, uh, his reputation. All in an attempt to attack and vilify the Apostle Paul. 
So going on, it says this, verse 5. For we have found this man a plague. <laughs> we have found this man a plague, he says. Uh, one who stirs up, look at the word, a choice word here, riots among all the people. Remember, Felix had experienced many sedations, uh, seditious riots in his um, in his uh, reign. So we found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Okay, so this is the charge against Paul. Now look at how Tertullus is being total lawyer here. He says, hey, Felix, you know how you have all these uprisings? Well, we found one. We found a guy who's doing it. His name's Paul. Here he is. Is Paul one of those uprisings, uh, rebellious leaders? No. He's just trying to preach the gospel of peace, actually. And we're going to get to what Paul actually came to do in the city of Jerusalem in just a moment. But a couple of things to note right off the bat. Number one, Christians who proclaim the message of the gospel will often be seen as troublemakers in this world. It's kind of what brings credibility to the fact that we are preaching the truth of God. Because if we believe that the world is in rebellion toward God, then when we preach God's message, there's going to be a rebellious reaction to that message, right? So sometimes as Christians, we're, we're, we're not going to understand this, but we're going to see it. We're going to experience it. Is that we're just trying to bring the gospel, and we get attacked for it. We get, we get vilified for it. And right now in China, that's exactly what's happening. I don't know if you've been hearing about the news, but China is really starting to put some pressure on Christians in uh, its populace. I mean, China's 1.4 billion people, 97 million of which are Christians. Recently, the Christian Post reports this headline out of China, renounce Christ or lose government assistance. China's low-income Christians have been told. Christian citizens in China who receive social welfare payments have been ordered to abandon their faith or lose governmental support, says the article. Teams have been sent out to remove crosses, religious symbols, images from the homes of people of faith who receive social welfare payments and replace them with portraits of former Chinese leader Mao Zedong and current President Xi Jinping. They are also told they must stop attending church services or praising God if they want to receive assistance, and people who refuse are treated as anti-party elements. Also, another report says that at least 400 churches have been closed or destroyed in China as of July 14, 2020. And it says this, churches are allowed to reopen if they comply with the, team, with, the, with the party and demonstrate their loyalty to the Communist Party, praising President Xi for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Isn't it amazing? You've got these peace-loving Christians in China, and the Chinese government is just seeing them as enemies of the state. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. I mean, Christians are people tr traditionally of peace. I, get, I know we have bad apples, but traditionally we're people of peace. We're actually commanded to love our neighbor no matter what our neighbor believes or thinks. Those are good neighbors. When you have people who love you no matter what you believe or think, those are good neighbors. And yet time and time again, they're painted as enemies of the state. Why is that? Because Christians hold to the idea that there is someone that is over the state, and the state doesn't like that. The state hates that idea. The state wants to be in charge. Thus, you see in our country, let's, let's bring this home to America. That's what you see in our country right now is the less Christian our country becomes, the more dependent we become on the state. It is call for socialism. This call for more government intervention. It's really just the fruit of we turned away from God, and now we look for someone else to give us what we need. And if it's not God, then it's going to be the government. Instead of trusting in God, let me have the government give us what we need. And that's really what it is. And, that's, and, and, and here's the problem with that. Whenever governments take control, they have a hard time giving it up. If it, there's anything that, want, that history has proven, it is that. And so you've got to understand, though, that Christians are going to be vilified. Christians, you're going to feel and you're going to experience persecution. You're going to feel tension. 
because of your faith in Christ. How are we going to respond? What should we do? And then there's this other thing that happens here. Remember the Jews hired Tertullus, a Roman lawyer. Isn't it ironic that the Romans and the Jews, who usually hate each other, have banded together to attack Paul? Oftentimes in Christian history, there's the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And you got to remember that it was Herod and Pilate that came together to put Christ to, the, to, to death. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who hated each other who came together as friends to put Christ to death. And now here, Tertullus and the Jews are working together to put Paul in prison for life or kill him. That's how it is, Christian. We are on terim, uh, enemy territory. We are on enemy territory. And I don't say this to, to, to strike fear in your heart. I actually want to uh, help you embrace this because this is our calling. This is our purpose. This is who we are. We might be on enemy territory, but as we're going to see through the Apostle Paul in these chapters, God is watching out for us. God has his hand on us. And no matter what people throw at us and no matter what crimes they accuse us of, we know that in the end, ultimately, God's purpose will never fail in our lives. So let's go on and read verse 10 in Acts chapter 24 and see what happens with Paul. When the governor nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, knowing, and this is Paul's reply, notice how it's void of flattery. He says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Isn't that amazing that Paul's happy to make his defense? I mean, he's on trial for his life, and he's being falsely accused of seditious behavior. And here he is saying, I'm still happy to make this, to make this defense, and you can verify, verse 11, that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this, verse 14, he says, I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect. And again, there's that phrase, the way. Christianity was never called Christianity in the book of Acts. It was called the way. Now, that's an interesting phrase, right? Why is it called the way? Because Jesus said, I am the way. And here's another reason. Because when you believe in Jesus, there is a way that you live. So he says, according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in prophets having hope in God, which these men themselves accept. In other words, I, I'm like these. These are my brothers. He says that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. And I love what Paul says here. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. And everything Paul here says is a gracious defense of these terrible accusations that he faces. But he, he demonstrates that great fruit of the Spirit here, doesn't he? What fruit of the Spirit? It's called self-control. Remember Galatians 5, when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Like, this is what the Holy Spirit does in your life. That when you are attacked, you do not react. That when you are vilified, you do not get vicious. That you can have peace in your heart because the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your body and the other people might point their finger and accuse you and label you uh, whatever, because there's all kinds of labels for Christians today, that we don't have to react in ways that are similar to the way we have been attacked. This is what Paul exemplifies for us here. And this is an important principle for when you feel stuck in life or when you feel like you just can't get ahead or where you, when you feel like someone else is just holding you down. Maybe you're a Christian at work and they know you're a Christian so they don't give you the promotion that you think you deserve. Or maybe you're a Christian at work and so they kind of isolate you from the rest of the group because you're not the one who you know, laughs at the dirty jokes or goes drinking with them after work or goes to the party or whatever. And you just feel isolated and alone and sometimes that's intentionally done against you and you feel like, man, 
they're doing this on purpose. And so it, it, it feels like, you know, they're pressing it around you and putting you in a box. Don't react. Let the Holy Spirit take up residence in you. Let the Holy Spirit lead you through that and respond with not evil, but with good for evil. Remember? That's what it says in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay evil for evil, but good. So here's what Paul does, and we go on in a text in verse 17, and it says this. Paul says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. So remember, they accuse him of uh, stirring up a riot. He says, no, actually, I came to give you guys money. I raised money from all these Gentile Christians, and I brought it to my nation to give them uh, some alms. They were going through a hard time. And then he says, and to my nation, and to present offerings. And then verse 18, he says, while I was doing this, they found me purified. And these are important phrases. He says, I was doing everything Jewish. I was purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men say themselves what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. And so here's what happens. Paul's own accusers don't even show up. Like they accuse him of all of these wrongdoings, the Jews from Asia. Remember, Asia was the riot with Alexander the, the, the silversmith uh, and the Temple of Artemis. And that happened way back in Acts chapter 18 or 19. And now here he's standing trial and they don't even bother to show up. And yet, and yet, and yet, Paul is not going to get off the hook on this trial. Verse, ta- verse 21, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection from the dead that I'm on trial before you to this day. But Paul is being totally strategic here. He's being calm, cool, collected, and strategic. He's, he's, find, he's found common ground with his accusers. He's saying the same God they worship, I worship. The only difference is I believe that God raised this guy Jesus from the dead. And I believe he's the way. And and so he's finding these commonalities with his accusers. And I think that's a very important Christian principle. Not to try to find ways to be at odds with people, but way to find common ground. I was sharing this with some guys last night. I was thinking about this. And sometimes when we try to share our faith, we almost look for an argument, don't we? We almost look for, let me me pick this argument. Let me me fight this battle. Let me try to die on this hill of social whatever. We got to stop doing that. As Christians, the scripture says, as far as it depends on you, try to live at peace with all men. We gotta learn to regain that gift. We gotta learn how to not react and not to get upset and not to get into uh, culture war fights with people who disagree with us. And we gotta learn that Christians and non-Christians see the world very differently, and that's okay. We can still be good neighbors. We don't have to find fault. Let's find common ground and still stand our ground on the message of Jesus. Remember the proverb says this, Proverbs 15, 18 says, a a hot-tempered man stirs up strife but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 29, 22 says, an angry person, this is the New Living Translation, an angry person starts fights. A hot-tempered person commits all kinds of sin. You can be watchful of this. When people start to attack you, don't respond with temper. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you peace. I think I'm talking to somebody, you got a, you got a coworker, you got somebody in your life that just drives you nuts, and they know that they drive you nuts. In fact, it's one of the worst things that you can do in life, and I've learned this the hard way. One of the worst things that you can do in life is to let someone know that they bug you. Don't ever do that. <laughs> the best thing is to just let it roll off your back. They, they really, and, 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 the, and, the, and the hope that we have in Christ reinforces this idea. They can't stop God's purposes in your life. They can't stop God from doing what he wants to do in you and through you. 
In fact, God will use what they try to do against you for his ultimate good. That was Joseph's testimony to his brothers. He says to them at the end of Genesis chapter 50, he says, listen, you guys sold me into slavery and threw me in pit. You did it for evil, but God turned it around for good so that many lives might be saved. So I just want to encourage you guys that when you feel stuck and when you feel attacked and when you feel like life isn't moving forward for you, it doesn't mean God isn't working, but you have got to keep calm and carry on, right? You've got to keep calm. Remember that little meme from a couple years ago? Keep calm and carry on. Why? Because God is not leaving you on your own. That's what Paul does here. He finds common ground and he keeps his calm. Verse 24, no, 22, sorry. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, and that's, who the guy, that's the guy that Paul stood trial uh, uh, before earlier, he says, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I would decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, this is an amazing thing, and we kind of like just brush by it. But listen, Felix literally has no one standing there accusing Paul, just Tertullus, this, this hired gun lawyer. The guys who originally saw Paul supposedly calling, causing trouble in the temple are not there to bear witness to it. And Paul has just defended himself very calmly, very collected, and there's no, there's no reason for Paul to go to prison or to stay locked up. But Felix does not exonerate Paul. And why? Because Felix is a politician. He is a politician. And politicians, at the end of the day, have to cater to what gets them back in power or keeps them in power. They, they don't want to offend the powerful group under their administration. And in this case, it was the accusing Jews. So while Paul might be innocent, unfortunately, Felix is beholden to the Jewish population in their opinion of Paul. Going on in verse 24, says this, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 25, And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, this, this is an interesting moment. What is Felix doing? He brings his wife in. And he's like, you got to see this guy, Paul. you got to hear this guy. He's kind of, an interesting, kind of an interesting character. And he has Paul speak. And Paul, what would you do, by the way? You're, you're locked in prison, and the governor asks to, you to come and speak to him and his wife. What would you do in that moment? Wouldn't you be like, hey, hey, get me out of here. I mean, honestly, show me the charges or exonerate me. Let me, let me free, right? Paul doesn't do any of that. He just starts talking about Jesus. I always say that, 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 that being the Roman centurion that was assigned to guard Paul must have been a horrible experience, especially for unbelieving Roman centurions, because this guy just could not shut up about Jesus no matter where he was, and he wasn't really concerned about gaining his own freedom. He was concerned about proclaiming the message of Jesus wherever he went. So Felix ushers in Paul with his wife sitting right there to listen in. And Paul's just like, all right, let's talk about Jesus. Oh, let's talk about sin. Let's talk about judgment. Let's talk about the fact that everybody's going to face judgment. And Felix freaks out. The Bible says he was alarmed. He was like scared. And the reason why is because Drusilla is not Felix's first wife. It's not Felix's second wife. It's Felix's third wife. And she was much younger than him. I think she was actually 36 years younger than him. And she had already been married at age 14 to someone before him, and here's how he won her heart, if you could say that. I say I use that term loosely. He actually brought in a magician from a foreign nation, and he had a magi magician 
do some kind of meditation practice with her and convince her that she was unhappy in her marriage to this other guy and talked her through the magician, through the sorcery, into marrying Felix. And Felix's name means happy. And the message that the, the sorcerer gave to uh, Drusilla was, you'll be happy if you marry happy. <laughs> kind of interesting. And this, is, this was a big scandal in that day, and everybody knew about it. And Felix was, you know, one of the people in charge of the, of the, uh, of the region in that time. And I'll tell you something, he probably, he probably heard Paul talking about righteousness, judgment, Jesus, and all this stuff, and he started to get convicted. And so he kind of pushed Paul away. Look what he says, go away. Hey, sometimes when people push you away, it's not because you did something wrong as a Christian. Sometimes it's just because you represent some conviction to their lives. And you know, you need to be aware of that. You need to be okay with that. Sometimes you have a family member, they don't no longer want to talk to you over Christmas or Thanksgiving because they know, they know what you believe. And you might not even say anything. Like they might be on their fifth marriage. You'll say nothing. You won't judge them. You don't have to judge them. You're not a Christian. A Christian's job is not to judge the world, right? We don't judge the world. And you say nothing, but you represent Jesus Christ, who for them is the eternal judge. And so sometimes just that your presence has a convicting presence on other people who don't believe. And that's exactly what happens here with Felix. But Paul is going to say what he's been called to say no matter where he is, and you got to love that about Paul. Going on, verse 26. At the same time, look at this, Felix hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Ever the politician, he's always running for re-election, so he needs some campaign finance, right? So says this. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And then look at this. When two years, think about this, two years, Paul is stuck in a Caesarean prison. Two years elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. You've got to love these Roman names. Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, again, he is a politician, Felix left Paul in prison. It's an amazing reality for Paul here. He's done what he needs to do. He has, and listen to this very carefully, he has actually just exemplified the spirit of Christ while under pressure. He's done the right thing in the wrong circumstances. And he's suffered for it. He's suffered unjustly. He should be released. He should be free, but he's not. That's sometimes what happens as Christians. We think that being a Christian means the good life is promised to us. And yes, there are blessings for obedience, but we live on what? Enemy territory. And so sometimes we will do what's right and we will suffer. And Paul, I'm sorry, Peter actually talks about this. He says, if you suffer for doing good, there is great reward. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Some of you do the right thing and you're, you're starting to think, man, maybe, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe I should just start doing the wrong thing like everybody else because it seems like there's prosperity if you do the wrong thing. No, 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 no. There might be short-term gain, but there's long-term pain when you do the wrong thing. There might be short-term gain, but there's long-term pain when you compromise your values to get ahead in life. And Paul did the right thing, and he is not exonerated, and he's not set free, and he lasts two more years in prison. Actually, it's exactly the same time that Joseph stayed in prison, even after he interpreted the dream of the cupbearer to the king. Remember that story back in Genesis? Joseph interpreted the king, the, the, the cupbearer's dream, and he said, hey, when you're restored, remember me, and he just totally forgot him for two years. There's something to be said for that. Joseph did the right thing and still suffered for two years. Sometimes you're going to do the right thing, and you're going to suffer. And we've got to go back a little bit. Remember that the Bible tells us earlier in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, that the Lord gave Paul a word of encouragement. And we've got to remember this, that when we are down on our luck, when we are discouraged, we've got to listen for the Lord's word of encouragement. 
Remember that? Chapter 23, verse 11. It says, The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to me about the, fa- uh, to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in where? In Rome. Jesus is like, you got, you're, you're here in Jerusalem because of your choices. But I got news for you, Paul. I want you to take courage. I want you to be strong. You're going to get to Rome. That's where I want you. Uh, and then there's another passage that we've got to remember that Paul had said to Ananias. This was Paul's calling, right? The Lord said to Ananias, go to him. This is back in Acts chapter 9. For he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I bring you to that passage at the end of Philippians chapter 1. We like the first part of that uh, verse, Philippians 1.29. We like the first part, but we don't like the second part. The first part says, For it has been granted to you to believe on Jesus Christ and, second part, to suffer for his name. <laughs> I like the first part. I don't like the second part. I, I like the fact that it's been granted for me to believe in Christ. But if we could just do away with the suffering. No, suffering sometimes comes standard as a Christian. All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 25 because this is going to just continue for Paul. He's going to go through another trial and another non-exoneration. So let's take a look at this. Chapter 25, verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he might summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. By the way, God is using this time in Paul's life in prison in Caesarea for his purposes. Guess what he's doing for two years while he's, while he's waiting this trial in, uh, in Caesarea? You know what he's doing? He's writing the book of Romans. He's writing the book of Romans. So he's not even in Rome yet, and he is writing to them about what? Romans is about the gospel, how all men are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. In, chapter, in verse 4, it says this, Festus replied that Paul was being kept to Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, If there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So Festus replaces Felix. Guess what? Festus is also a politician, but he was a good one. Uh, And you know what? We're in election year, and this is what's going to happen with us. There's going to be times where we have a politician that's good for us, and there's going to be a time where there's going to be a politician that's bad for us. Uh, That's just the way of the world. And Festus was actually a very noble political administrator in Jerusalem. Josephus, the uh, Roman, uh, sorry, the Jewish historian, claims that Festus was a conscientious administrator who sought to rid Judea of all the increasing uh, um, rebellious uprisings. Uh, He actually died in office in uh, AD 62, but he was a good guy and yet still a politician. So look what it says, verse 6. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around and bringing many serious and many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Again, there's no basis for the accusations against Paul. He's being falsely accused. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews or against his temple or against Caesar have I committed any offense. And this is important for Paul for us to see what Paul does here. He says, look, I, I didn't bring offense to three groups of people, to the Jews, to those in the temple, or to Caesar. Remember that scripture? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So maybe you don't like what you see on television or on that news network or on the other news network. 
Or maybe you work in the public school system and you don't like how the administration is working in that position. Or maybe you're in the business in the marketplace world and you see how a boss is treating certain employees and you, you, just, you just don't like the way the company is going. Well, listen, Christian, listen. I, I find myself having to say to this, this to Christians on a regular basis. Just be nice. <laughs> It is not your job to correct everybody. You are not the judge of all the earth. God is. Relax. And here's what I would say. Do your job to the utmost of your ability with integrity, righteousness, and peace. And let God take care of the rest. He has a way of doing that. He has a way. By the way, he's also very patient with with rebels. He's very patient with evil people. All right? He was patient with you. So sometimes I think that Christians feel like it is their moral obligation to correct the actions of non-Christians. It is not. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, it is not my job to judge those outside the church. That is not my, that's not my role. That's not my jam. It is God, that's God's role. My job, and this is important, Christians, it is our job to judge those inside the church. It is our job to hold each other's feet to the fire and accountable, and accountable to, the, to the Lord's word. The problem is, it's a lot easier for us to look at the world and shout and scream and cry about what they're doing wrong than to look at our own house and clean it up. It's very easy to cast rocks, throw stones, or see the speck in other people's eyes. It's a lot harder to look at our own lives and say, wait a second, we got a clean house. The scripture says in Peter, it says, the judgment must begin with the house of the Lord. We're so busy worrying about what's wrong with Washington, what's wrong with Beacon Hill, what's wrong with Providence, Rhode Island, what's wrong with this person, that person, that that, that's not our role. That's God's domain. Our job is to keep our house clean. Our job is to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to have a growing influence in our lives so that we live godly lives and peaceful in our, this present age and shine, as Paul says in Philippians, as stars in the universe. Okay, going on, verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem to be tried there on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. Now, Paul knows. If he goes to Jerusalem, he's dead. They're going to kill him. So he's, he's, pre, he's, he's doing what Jesus said. Be wise as, serpent, as serpents and innocent as doves. So he says, listen, I'm standing here before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Paul's a little bit maybe exasperated, but he's also aware that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's dead. And so he uses his last, you know, his, his last bullet, if you will, in his gun. He says, look, I, I just appeal to Caesar. It's, it's been two years. I've been waiting for justice for two years. Uh, they're they're going to get me. I just know it. Here's the deal. I appeal to Caesar, and he has, by Roman law, as a Roman citizen, the right to appeal his case to the highest law in the land, to the Caesar himself. And by the way, Paul also knows that this is the best way he can get to Rome. <laughs> That's where Caesar lives. Caesar lives in Rome. And now I think Paul is actually doing a little bit of uh, calc- uh, calculation in his mind. He's saying, wait a second. If they let me free, I have to pay my own way to get to Rome. But if I appeal to Caesar through this long drawn-out legal proceeding, they're going to bring me to Rome on their dime. I think he's doing a little bit of, you know, wise as serpent uh, stuff here. He's saying, I can get there on your dime, so I appeal to Caesar. And Festus says, okay, you want to go, you can go. Verse 13. Uh, Let's go, where is verse 13? Sorry. Uh, Verse, uh, sorry. 
Oh, man, I have these slides messed up. Okay, verse... Now, when days had passed, there we go. King Agrippa, there we are. The king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accusers met the, the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. Uh, going on, it says this, So when they came here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge against, uh, in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute about their own religion, about certain Jew, Jesus, who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul appeared to Caesar, I'm sorry, but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Okay, we've got to back up here because this is important. The people before whom Paul uh, stands trial, not the best people. There's this guy, Agrippa, named, uh, actually King Agrippa. And he is... <laughs> He is the grandson of one Herod the Great. Now, you remember Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king of Judea at the time of Jesus' birth. And if you remember from the early passages in Matthew and in Luke, it is a, a King Herod the Great who orders all the children that are all the boys of Bethlehem who are two years and younger to be murdered because he's He's threatened by the idea that the Messiah, the true king of the Jews, might be born. He has a son named Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa I is the Herod of Acts chapter 12, who with great pomp and ceremony preaches before the Jews and they hail him as a god. We talked about this in Acts chapter 12. And he is immediately struck by worms and he dies. Well, he has a son named Agrippa II. So Herod, Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II. And then Herod Agrippa has this sister, and this is going to get funky, <laughs> this sister named Bernice. Bernice had been previously married to another king uh, from a Syrian nation, and she got divorced from him and ended up moving in with her, her brother, her one-year younger brother, Herod Agrippa II. Well, this turned into a topic of gossip among the Jews. There was a great amount of speculation that there was more going on in Herod Agrippa II's household than, than appeared to the eye. There was actually great speculation that these two, brother and sister, were having an incestuous relationship. And these are the people before whom Paul will have his trial. Now, this is in Acts chapter 25, the end of the chapter. And so let's take a look. Actually, he makes a defense in chapter 26. So let's look at what happens here in chapter 25. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people mentioned, I mean, petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I have found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing to 
uh, definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Okay. Luke draws for us some sharp contrast here in this chapter, and it's, we, we, we've got to see it. You've got King Agrippa II, grandson of the great Herod, right? Herod, who was well-known, not just in Israel, but also throughout Rome for his building projects. He was the most expansive builder in ancient Israel, and he made the temple grand and glorious, and everybody you know, just, just fell in love with uh, Herod's building projects. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you can still see the wall that remains from Herod's temple, and you can go to Masada, a temple barracks that uh, Herod had built, and still the remains of it are still standing today. But you have this guy, the grandson of the great Herod, with his sister, with whom he is having this incestuous relationship with, is, is kind of like this, you know, if the National Enquirer was around back then, they would be on the front page of that or on People Magazine every week, right? You, you got to think about who's on People Magazine today. That's, that would be Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. You know, are they an item or are they not? You know, the secret life of Herod Agrippa and Bernice. Details inside. <laughs> you would see all these magazines as you would go to the CVS. And so they come to the, the courtroom and with all their pomp, with all their, with all their royalty and all their clothing. And, you know, you could just see it. And here's Paul the Apostle in chains. This is the picture that Paul, that Luke wants us to see. Because here's the deal. Though it looks on the outside like Agrippa and Bernice have the life of one's dreams, are the celebrities of their world. And Paul looks like a poor, disheveled, homeless prisoner on trial for his life. The spiritual reality behind the visual appearance is this. Herod Agrippa is in bondage to sin and lust. He's in bondage. He's in an incestuous relationship with his sister. He's, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a spectacle for the, for the crowds to behold. He's a joke. He's a byword. And Paul the Apostle goes down in history as one of the greatest men in human history. Just, just kind of a friendly reminder that things are not always as they seem. The people on the cover of the magazine... Man, they look like they have it all together, don't they? They look like their life is all together. But you know what we do with them? We build them up and we tear them out, tear them down. You know what it is? You know what real life is? Real life is living in the confidence that you belong to God and he's got you in the palm of his hand. And when you know that, you can face anybody with confidence. That's exactly what Paul does here before King Agrippa and Bernice. So let's read it. Verse two, this is Paul's testimony now. I consider myself fortunate to stand before you, King Agrippa, and I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now, verse 6, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself, 
was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He's just telling a story. We've gone through this. This is now the third time that Paul gives this testimony. He says in verse 11, And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. you got to love Paul's boldness here. I mean, he is not stopping. He is on the defense now for two years. He has been through trial after trial. This is now trial number six. And he is not stopping. What gives Paul the power? What gives Paul the tenacity to not stop no matter how many injustices he faces? Do you know what it is? It's the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a man on fire. We like to talk about being gifted in the church. And sometimes I think we mistake gifting for charisma or style or substance. And Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians, he actually says this about himself. He says, I know what you say about me. I know what you say. You say his letters are weighty and and powerful, but in person, his presence is weak and unintimidating. So Paul, you know, I don't think he'd be dazzling many people on YouTube as a celebrity preacher today. I don't think he'd be like the face of some cool, big megachurch today. Probably diminutive. Probably not impressive. Probably not a very good-looking guy. Who knows? We don't know. There's actually a rumor that he was very unattractive uh, from, from world history. We don't know that for sure, but what I do see here is Paul exemplifies what being filled with the Holy Spirit really is. It's not charisma. It's not stage presence. It's the tenacity to never give up no matter what odds you are facing. Here he stands before the biggest case that he's ever faced, the biggest trial he's ever faced, and he is not stopping. He is not shriveling up. He is not wilting. He is powerful. He is bold, and he witnesses to the power of God's grace in his life in front of King Agrippa. He exemplifies what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 21 when, when, when Jesus says this. He says in verse 12, but before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate, beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Look, man, we saw this in Stephen. We saw this, actually, we saw this in Peter in in Acts chapter 3. We saw this in Stephen in Acts chapter 7. We saw this in Philip in Acts chapter 8. We see this now in Paul through Acts chapter 20 and onward. No, when God sets your life on fire, no man can put it out. That's the promise of Scripture. That's the promise that Jesus has made to his people. Okay. Back to Paul's testimony. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority commission of the chief priests, and at midnight, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Okay, a lot of times we focus on the fact that Jesus talks about how when we persecute his church, we are persecuting him, and that's true. But I want to look at this phrase right here. This is an interesting phrase. It's the first time that Paul makes mention of this phrase that Jesus said. He says, is it hard for you to kick against the ghost? Now, that doesn't appear in Acts chapter 9. It doesn't appear earlier in Acts, uh, in, the, in Acts chapter 23 when Paul brings his testimony out. But it appears here. Jesus asks Paul, is it hard for you to kick against the goats? Okay, what is a goat? The goat is a long stick that they would put at the front of the chariot so that, or, or, the, or the wagon, whatever the animal was, was pulling, so that if you, you know, 
whip the whip the animal to go. You know, you you got to try to get the animal to go forward, and it kicked back, saying, "I don't want to go." It would uh, pierce its back legs on that goat. It would pierce itself, and one piercing, fine, but then to kick again and hit the same piercing, ow, and then to kick more, ow, 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 like. Jesus is saying something here deliberately to Paul. He's saying, you're my servant, and you're kicking against the goats. You're doing things opposing me, thinking that you're actually doing the right thing. You're actually hurting yourself. It's kind of an interesting picture of obedience, is it not? It's actually a very interesting picture of what it means to be God's servant, because sometimes I think we think that obedience is doing God a favor, or the way to get the good things out of, uh, out of God's hand. If I obey, God will bless me. When in reality, the picture here is we are God's instrument. We are God's, if you will, for lack of a better term, animal. <laughs> uh, we are God's tool to do his job. And when we don't do it, we're only hurting ourselves. So, so some of you have refused to obey in some ways in your life. And you're thinking, well, I, I want to have a little bit of freedom here. You're only hurting yourself. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, let's continue. Verse 16, Jesus said to him, But rise, stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you, in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. A couple of things here that Jesus says Paul's going to do. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. Okay, this is a mouthful. But it is uh, a very important phrase, very important, uh, very important language here around what it means to be, uh, to be unsaved. And it's just so helpful for us as Christians to understand this. Jesus says, when you preach, you're going to open their eyes. They're going to turn from darkness to light. They're going to turn from the power of Satan to God. They're going to receive forgiveness of sins. All these things are what non-believers need. Why do non-believers act like non-believers? Very clear. Jesus knows. Jesus is telling Paul. Their eyes are closed. They're in darkness. They don't see the truth. They don't know. And, by the way, they're also under the power of Satan. Christians, this is, why this is becoming a repeated theme here today. But Christians, you've got to take it easy on non-Christians. They're in darkness. They're not in the light. Take it easy. Relax about how they live. Love them to Jesus. Don't lecture them. By the way, they also need forgiveness of sins. A lot of times that's what people just, they just, they know there's guilt inside. They know they're not living the way they should. And they're, they're burdened by it. That's the, that's the point of the gospel message. That's why we ask you to serve. That's why we ask you to get involved. So you can help us bring the light of God's goodness into people's lives so they can stop groping around in the darkness and they can see the light and turn to their Father in heaven. Okay, going on. I could spend all day on that. Verse 18. I just focused on that for a moment. Then verse 20, uh, 19, it says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Verse 22, to this day, to this, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. There it is. How does he stay strong? I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great. In other words, I'm not intimidated by great people or small people. 
saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I've always loved this, this phrase of Paul uh, back in... Oops, I'm off. <laughs> I'm a hard time with my keynote. I'm sorry. I love the, the, what he says in verse 19. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, I know that this is what Jesus called me to do, and I wasn't going to disobey that. I was going to do what I knew God had set me apart to do. And that's exactly what God is asking you when you feel stuck in life, when you feel like you're not moving forward. And this is exactly what Paul exemplifies. I'm going to do what God wants me to do no matter who is in front of me, small or great, and I'm confident because he's confident here. He's confident on what the prophets and Moses have said would come to pass. And he's ready to present it. And as he was saying these things, verse 24, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, now this isn't Agrippa, this is Festus, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul, again, doesn't get worked up, doesn't get react, reactive. He's self-controlled. And what does he say? I am not out of my mind. Verse 25, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Look what Paul's doing now. He's like, hey, let me talk about Jesus with you. Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Are you kidding me? You're going to try to tell me about how to become a Christian? And then Paul, love this, Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I love this picture. Here he is, the prisoner for the Lord, in chains, in front of the great celebrities of his day. And he's free inside. He's, he's free to be what God has called him to be, regardless of who's in front of him or what he's facing. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a man who has surrendered his life to God. And it doesn't matter what situation he finds himself in. He has learned that with God inside, with the Lord inside, leading his life, he's freer than the greatest leaders of his day. You know, sometimes we can get a look at the world. We can get so despondent. We can we can do what the psalmist talks about in Psalm 73. I've always loved this psalm. Because in Psalm 73, he says this. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And he says, but for me, my foot had almost slipped. My steps had nearly stumbled. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever been there? Have you ever said, man, I, just look at the world. Look at how, look at how well it's going for them. I, I know God is good to me, but honestly, come on. Sometimes I get so sick and tired of seeing people who don't love God prosper. And he goes on and he talks about how they have no pain and everything looks, out like the, looks like it works out for them and they're great people and everything's wonderful. But then he gets to verse 16. And I've always loved this psalm. Then I thought about how to understand this. It seemed too wearisome a task. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. In other words, I got myself to church and I reminded myself, oh, right, <laughs> there's a judgment coming. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors. You know, Sometimes that's going to happen to us. We're going to get so caught up in how the world looks like it's going well without God. And so is there any benefit to serving God? Yes, there is. It's a slippery slope to live in prosperity apart from God. A couple of years back, a guy by the name of Hugh Hefner died. We all know this guy, right? 
Here was a man living in a mansion in Southern California, surrounded by beautiful women, fine cars, and a luxurious lifestyle. That is the envy of every materialistic man on the planet. But his life was empty. His life was void of meaning. He's dead. He died. And right now, he is in his grave awaiting the just judgment of Almighty God. And his eternity, if he had not repented, (laughs) which I don't think he did, will be a dark and pointless evil. Did you know that in his youth, he was raised by a Methodist mother? And his story goes that his Methodist mother, very devout Methodist woman, but she never hugged him. I don't know if that was why he went his way, but uh, she actually wanted him to be a missionary, and he rejected it. And we know the story of his life. He blew up the sexual norms of American culture. He made objectifying women a, a, a financial industry. He destroyed the souls of young children and young men to this day. The average age for a young boy seeing seeing pornography is 11. This man's judgment is incurring greater and greater means by the moment. And yet Hefner had different hopes for his children. The the, the ironic thing is is that he would uh, clean up the Playboy Mansion whenever his kids would come home because he didn't want them to see all the sexual stuff that he did in there with with the women. Kind of ironic. He wouldn't mind destroying your kids, but he didn't want his kids destroyed by the very thing he was doing to your kids. Ed Sessor wrote in Christianity Today that, that Hefner would clean his house to keep the realities of his lifestyle from his own daughter, and then he further laments the consequences of Hefner's role as, a, as the general of the sexual revolution, saying, quote, it's hard to fathom that anyone would have known what his work would have turned into. Parents growing up today are fighting to keep their children pure. Spouses are fighting to keep their marriages intact, and many enslaved and entrapped adult are, uh, many are enslaved and trapped in the adult entertainment industry, have been figuratively and literally stripped not only of their clothes, but of their value as people made in the image of God. If this does not concern us, what will? The legacy of this man that many people, many men in this age, envy and desire is a legacy of destruction and despair and judgment awaits. You see, what Paul had that day before King Agrippa was a heart that was set free a heart that was set free from the chains and the bondages of sin. So though he might be, have been in chains physically, he was not in chains spiritually. Spiritually, The lesson for us today is this. Stop judging by what you see on the outside and let God shape your heart by what is true about you, according to Scripture, that if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. We end with this passage, verse 30. Then the king rose and the governor and the Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So it seems like all hope is lost, right? Paul is now going to be in prison, going to Rome to face Caesar when he could have been set free. But I remind you that this was actually Jesus' plan the whole time. Jesus had told Paul in Acts chapter 23, he said, you're going to testify me now in Jerusalem and you're going to testify to me about me in Rome. And so what do we see? Here's what we see. Paul will travel to Rome two years later, and in spite of everything else, and the best part is, Rome will pay for it. (laughs) If Paul had to pay for his own travel to Rome in the ancient world, that would have been severely expensive. But now as the prisoner of Rome, he gets to go on their dime. So God actually uses Paul's season of being stuck to actually benefit and bless Paul and put him in the right place at the right time to testify to the gospel of grace in the great city of ancient Rome.
So where are you? Maybe you say, help, I'm stuck. I got, I got four quick points for you. Number one, God sees. He sees where you are. He has not given up on you, and his purpose prevails. Proverbs 19.21 says, the, many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Number two, obedience is for your good. Are you kicking against the goads right now? Are you complaining? Are you grumbling? Are you, are you fighting with people? Are you, are, you getting, are, you, are you letting stress of being stuck cause you to lash out? Okay, you're kicking against the goads. You're only going to hurt yourself here. Relax. Let God's peace rule in your heart, as Colossians says. Number three, time can be redeemed. You think it's too late for you. Wrong. Moses started at age 80. Abraham, for heaven's sake, started at age 100. It's not too late. God has a way of making things. He has a fast-forward button on, on your life. He can fast-forward that thing so that you catch up to where you thought you should have been in the first place. God's not, God is not restricted by the stuck seasons of your life. And then number four, God can and will work through your own errors to accomplish his will. And for me, this is the greatest lesson for me in Acts chapter 21 through 26. Paul is going through this long trial and out trial process, six trials, two years in prison, because he didn't listen. And it's his mistake, and it's his error. And maybe, and I know, you have made errors, you have made mistakes, but God can and will work through even your own errors to accomplish his will. I leave you with that passage I just quoted to you, Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them okay, some of them moderate, some of them neutral. But good news, it is the purpose of the Lord. It is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Take that to the bank. And don't trust in your own ability to manipulate the circumstances of your life to move ahead. Trust in the time and in the, and the, and the, and the un changing purposes of God for your life. I hope this has helped you. I hope that if you're stuck, you don't get depressed. Turn your heart toward heaven, and God will power you and strengthen you for the journey. Hey, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already at youtube.com slash deepntv. Like it, like the video, and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. It will help spread the word of the Deep End Podcast. And if you would be so kind as to share this or other videos and episodes on your social media page, that will help spread the word as well. I'm so glad that you joined us for Tuesday night. I will see you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.